Well, thanks very much, Michael, and good evening, everyone. It's um, great to be up here in this uh, warm climate. <laughs> As we were driving up tonight, I uh, was watching the exterior thermometer on the car steadily drop. But uh, there you go. It's a beautiful area and uh, lovely, crisp, clear mountain air, which is good for you, isn't it? Is that right? Yeah, amen. Um, look, it's a great privilege to be able to join with you tonight and uh, just to share with you about um, the opening chapters of this book, the Bible, God's Word. Now, I have uh, the very great privilege of uh, travelling around uh, this country and others, sharing with Christians and encouraging them to have confidence in this book, the Bible, right from the very beginning. And the reason I do it is that my own uh, life experience, I guess, has been that I grew up um, in a uh, a church which actually did not have a particularly high view of scripture. So I just assumed that God must have used evolution to create. And that seemed to make a lot of sense to me. I could pursue my science studies and live as a Christian. I actually became a Christian when I was 11 at a Billy Graham crusade in 1959. So you now know how old I am. That's if you're good at arithmetic. Um, but, you know, it's interesting... I couldn't answer a lot of the questions that were going around at that time, and still do actually, and so I wasn't able to share my faith confidently with people. And you know, this, this whole issue of our origins, where we came from, um, you know, influences how we see ourselves, how we relate to other people, and it actually influences our view of our eternal destiny as well. This guy wrote just a while ago about why this issue mattered so much for him, and he said this, I was raised in the church until my teens before rejecting it and declaring myself an atheist agnostic. The creation-evolution issue was the number one sticking point for me. How could I possibly believe the Bible if it was wrong from the very start? You know, that's a pretty good point, isn't it? If the Bible's wrong at the beginning, how can you be sure that it's, got, it's correct in other places? Um, how do you know that what it tells us in the New Testament is really true about salvation, about the resurrection, about our eternal destiny and so on? And he finished by saying thank you and God bless because our materials helped him get plugged back into um, a situation where he could have confidence in the word of God right from the very beginning. In fact, Richard Dawkins was asked a question once on a television program and the question was, was there a particular point or something that you read or an experience that you had that said, yes, this is it, God doesn't exist? And it's interesting to see how Dawkins replied. He said, oh, well, by far the most important, I suppose, was understanding evolution. I think there really is a deep incompatibility between evolution and Christianity. And I think I realised that at the age of about 16. Interesting, isn't it? He says there's a deep incompatibility between Christianity and evolution. I wonder what he means by that. You know, I think this is the incompatibility. You see, the evolutionary story tells us that over millions and millions of years of death and struggle and suffering, mankind finally evolved and appeared on the scene. But that places death and suffering for millions of years before man. Now, the Bible actually has it the other way around. It says it was man's actions in the garden that brought death and suffering into the world. And that is a completely incompatible picture with the evolutionary story, isn't it? You know, Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 says this, For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ 
all will be made alive. You see, that's, if you like, a potted summary of the whole gospel message. But isn't it interesting how it begins? For since death came through a man, that man, of course, was Adam, the very first man. So if death came before Adam, then the whole gospel message doesn't make any sense. And that was my problem as a young person. And you know, it's still a problem today. This was a survey done in New South Wales scripture classes recently. And uh, the top three questions, or three of the top four, were these. How can I know that God exists? You know, that's a pretty good question, isn't it? You see, the evolutionary story tells us that the universe made itself through naturalistic, unguided, random processes over millions and millions of years. So when I talk tonight about evolution, what I mean is the capital E evolution, if you like, the grand picture going all the way from molecules to mankind without any divine guiding hand. It's a, an attempt, a naturalistic attempt, to explain the existence of everything in the universe. So what naturalistic means is it seeks to explain the existence of everything without God. No supernaturalistic explanation is admitted. So at rock bottom, evolution is actually an atheistic worldview. So as a young man, I was trying to integrate an atheistic worldview into my Christian worldview, and not surprisingly, they don't mix. But the problem is, we're told today that this evolutionary story is a proven fact. So no wonder young people are asking, how can I know that God exists? The second question, how can I believe in a good God when there's so much suffering? Has anyone ever been asked that question? Anyone? Yep. It's a good question, isn't it? And it's a question that deserves an answer. But I had no answer to that question, because if God used evolution to create, he must have created suffering and death before man. So how can he be a good God? It doesn't make any sense. And the last question was, doesn't evolution prove that God doesn't exist? You see, the Bible tells us that we are to always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have, but to do this with gentleness and respect. And that's what I couldn't do as a young man. Now, I don't mean the gentleness and respect bit. I mean the first bit, right? I didn't have answers to my questions. And when I discovered after my university years that I actually could believe the opening chapters of Genesis really were true at face value, and not only that, that I should believe it because it forms the foundation stone of the very gospel message itself, it was a tremendously liberating thing for me in my faith. And that's why I travel around today doing just this. Now after the service, uh, as you heard uh, from Michael, there'll be supper out the back and we have some tables with some books and DVDs which is uh, all there to give you the opportunity to get equipped with answers to the sorts of challenges that we just discussed. Questions that are being thrown at Christians in our secular society today. One of those resources is a creation magazine. I'll tell you more about that a little later on, but a lot of the illustrations I'm going to use tonight come from the creation magazine. We also have a website and this is what the front page of the website looks like. There's a new feature article here every day of the week. We encourage folks to get onto that and to, to read it. There's a search window in the top corner, so if you have any questions at all, just type keywords into that search window 
It gives you access to over 9,000 different articles and items of interest all aimed at equipping you with answers to these sorts of challenges so that you can do the, um, the, the 2 Peter 3.15. 1 Peter 3.15, sorry, you always be prepared. Now, those of you uh, who you know, are into the, uh, the social media, you'll notice that we're also there on Facebook, YouTube and Twitter. Um, you can follow us by that means if you like. Uh, I was told the other day that YouTube, Facebook and Twitter are all going to combine together to form a massive new social networking site. Incredible. They're going to call it You Twit Face. Well, anyway, that's what someone told me. <laughs> Maybe not. <laughs> Another really good thing about our website is that it's got a dead easy web address to remember. So if you want to know anything about creation, well, now let me back up a minute. You know, I, I read somewhere that if you say something at the same time as you see it, then it helps to imprint it into your memory. So I want you to say the name of our website when it comes up on the screen, you right? So if you want to know anything about creation, you just go to creation.com. Great. Now, we also have a free email newsletter service that we send around if ever something happens that we believe folks need to hear about. Like uh, recently, the Noah movie was released. Who's seen the Noah movie, by the way? A few of you? Yep. So, if you've seen the movie, make sure you read the book, right? Because the book really tells you the truth about what actually happened. So, we uh, had an article on our website and we sent this uh, email newsletter out and it directed people to the link to go and read that and, and a few other articles that we had there as well. So if you would like to receive a copy of our email newsletter service, then we're going to give you an opportunity in a moment for you to give us your email address. And the way that will work is that we have volunteers in all of the major population centres around this country called Friends of CMI. And uh, they're going to hand around a moment a clipboard which has a form on it, looks like that. Just write your name, your email address, and if you include your postcode, then we can tell you if something's happening in your area. So if I can invite the guys who are going to hand those around. So we've got Andrew, Con and Wayne. So they're going to come down the front. And as these boards go around, just fill them out and pass them down the row and we'll collect them afterwards. So I want to speak tonight on this topic, elephants in the room. Now it's a very strange expression. Has anybody heard the old expression, there's an elephant in the room? You know what it means? It's sort of there's some topic or other that we don't want to talk about. We all know it's there. And we sort of have this conversation pretending that it isn't there, but there's an elephant in the room. So I want to talk about a couple of different elephants in rooms tonight. You know, back in the middle 1800s, Charles Darwin formulated his um, theory about how um, biological systems, creatures and what have you, evolved all from an original primordial cell. We called it the evolutionary tree of life and from this first amoeba or whatever it was, all these different branches formed and finally up the top we have mankind appearing. And this theory really rocked the culture of his day because people um, were, were just stunned at this because here seemed to be a way in which an atheist could be, as Richard Dawkins once said, intellectually fulfilled. You see, up until this time, if you were an atheist, you had no way of explaining the incredible diversity of living things. But Darwin provided what seemed to be a very plausible explanation, a naturalistic explanation. Now, Darwin's grand idea actually rested on the foundations of a man called Charles Lyell, who believed that 
The geological processes that we see in the world around us happened slowly and gradually over vast periods of time. And that kind of set the stage, if you will, for Darwin to come up with his biological evolution ideas. But Lyell, in a letter to friends, admitted that his objective was to free science from Moses. That's a bit interesting, isn't it? See, Moses edited or wrote the first five books of the Bible, of course, including Genesis. So what he's really saying is, is that he wants to set science free from the Christian belief system that was prevalent in his culture that day. So what you're really talking about here are two philosophies of science. So what then really is science? Well, science is all about the study of the physical universe to try and find logical explanations for how things work. Now, I had the very great privilege of working in the aerospace industry for some 30 or so years. Um, I worked uh, with Optus, who owns and operates the um, Australia's national satellite system. Now, I know a lot of you here tonight will have Telstra phones, and I'm happy to pray with you after the service. But <laughs> have you seen those little grey dishes on rooftops around the place? Yep, you know what I mean? They're all receiving things like um, Foxtel, Ostar, ABC, SBS, the commercial TV networks, and so on. Now, you do need to understand that I have absolutely no accountability whatsoever for what comes over the satellites, right? But I did have a lot to do with the design of the spacecraft themselves. In fact, um, many of you will know Eric Warren, whom I believe is a member of this congregation. Um, Eric and I worked together on the design of the original spacecraft back in the 1980s, so that gives you some idea of how old we are. But anyway, uh, all you young people, most of you weren't born then, but never mind. So... The kind of science I've been involved in is what you could call operational science. It's the sort of science which uh, is based on observable and repeatable experiments, but it's the kind of science which gives us the amazing technological gadgets that we see in the world today, like communication satellites, mobile phones, advances in medical research, and so on. But it's all based on observable, repeatable experiments. That's how new discoveries are made and new technologies are developed. But there's another sort of science. We could call it historical science. Now, in historical science, the scientist looks at evidence in the present and tries to work out what happened in the past to lead to what he's observing in the present. So, like this guy with the fossil in the rock, he looks at that fossil and he wonders to himself, you know, how did this little creature live, what kind of environment was it in, and so on. Now, something interesting happens when a scientist makes up a story about the past to explain what he's observing in the present, particularly in regards origins. You see, if this guy believes the evolutionary story, the unguided, random, natural processes, millions and millions of years, and so on, then the way he explains that fossil will reflect his belief. So he might look at that, for instance, and wonder to himself uh, where in the long, slow progression from that first primordial cell all the way up to complex organisms like you and me does this little creature fit. He might ask himself um, how many millions of years ago did it live? So can you see that what he believes about the past influences how he interprets the evidence? Make sense? Now let's imagine, though, that this guy is a Bible-believing Christian. When he looks at that fossil in the rock, he may well think to himself, you know, this little fossil was likely laid down as a result of the actions of Noah's flood, which probably deposited pretty much all of the fossil record all around the world today. 
Wow, what a radically different interpretation of exactly the same data. You see, we don't actually argue about the data because we've all got the same fossils, rocks, trees, stars, living systems and so on. But we interpret the data in accordance with what we believe about its origins. So, let's just summarise that. Operational science is about the present, it's about observable and repeatable experiments. Historical science, however, is about the unobservable, unrepeatable past. So the question is, how do we get to the truth about our origins? Because observing things in the present actually doesn't reveal what happened at their origins, because we can't observe origins. You see, think of it like this. We have the scene of a crime, and the detectives come, and they look at all the evidence, and they try to reconstruct what happened. Now, because they weren't there, they can't be 100% sure, and uh, you know there's always more than one way you can interpret the data. And that, of course, is the stuff of a good detective story, isn't it? You know, right at the end, all the pieces fit together in a completely unexpected way. So, what we need, though, at the scene of the crime to resolve any ambiguity is an eyewitness. If there was an eyewitness who was trustworthy, reliable, then that person's testimony would carry a great deal of weight in trying to determine whether the accused was guilty or innocent, right? So, to discover the truth about our origins, we need an eyewitness. Someone who obviously was there, who knows everything, who loves us and who would not deceive us, and who has written down everything we need to know about our origins. And friends, we have exactly that in this book, the Bible. You see, the Bible is like a history book of the universe. It's not a science book. You can't find Boyle's gas laws and the laws of Maxwell or whatever in this book, but you can find a reliable, accurate, eyewitness, historical record of what happened right from the beginning of time. And when we look at that book, it turns out that it tells us that right at the beginning, God created everything in this physical universe in just six ordinary days, the days the same as what we observe today or experience today, that man from a state of perfection rebelled against God and that rebellion is what brought suffering and death into the world. God then judged the world with a global catastrophic flood, the flood of Noah. Only those with Noah on board the ark survived and the various root languages arose at the Tower of Babel. So that's what the Bible tells us about our origins. But hardly a day goes past without some sort of a claim that the evolutionary story is a proven fact. And that's how it's presented in our schoolrooms, in primary school, secondary school, universities, TV documentaries, popular press. It's all just a given. The millions of years are just stated as though they are all true fact. But they don't fit with the Bible's account of origins. So it's like there's this huge elephant in the biblical room. And on that elephant is all this evidence, supposedly irrefutable evidence, for the evolutionary story. So what on earth do we as Christians do with the elephant in the biblical room? Well, over the years, there have been a number of different approaches to this elephant. Some people have thought, well, maybe we could just ignore the thing. Let's pretend it isn't there, and we'll just continue on, and and maybe it'll go away or something. But it doesn't work. We had a letter from a chaplain at Macquarie University a while back. He said, this is a vital subject at university since the institution's philosophy of education is secular humanism. Thus, students are bombarded with it in every lecture at the 
basic, uh, as the basic assumption. This constant brainwashing destroys the faith of many Christians each year. Our surveys indicate that 80% of first year students believe in a God who is there. By their second year, only 15% believe in God. Friends, our young people are going off to university unprepared for the barrage of secular humanism that they will get. Now, that letter was written 20 years ago, and I can assure you that these numbers are lower substantially today. It would be nothing like 80%, and it would be way lower than 15%. So, ignoring the elephant comes with a tragic cost. But, you know, it's not just young people who get affected by this. This is uh, Charles Templeton, who was a, uh, a Canadian evangelist. He was a running mate of Billy Graham's, in fact. Indeed, that's a photograph of Templeton addressing a mass evangelistic rally. And uh, it was said that Templeton was a better preacher than Billy Graham. Now, Templeton decided that he should uh, advance himself, so he went along to a theological cemetery, uh, a seminary. Sorry. Um, and, uh, <coughs> and there he studied what is called higher criticism. Now, higher criticism is a, a way of looking at the Bible in a higher way, and it came about because theologians accepted the scientists' claims that evolution was true. Now, they, you can't find millions of years in the scriptures from cover to cover, so they thought, well, maybe, maybe we have to interpret the words of Genesis in a higher way. So, higher criticism was born. Sadly, Charles Templeton walked away from his faith. He wrote a book called Farewell to God, My Reasons for Rejecting the Christian Faith. And in that book he said this, I believe there is no supreme being with human attributes, no God in the biblical sense, but that all life is the result of timeless evolutionary forces having reached its present transient state over millions of years. Friends, ignoring this element in the room comes with tragic cost. Well, others have thought, well, maybe somehow or other we can integrate the evolutionary story into the Bible. Um, for instance, maybe some of the words don't mean what we think they mean. I mean, does the Bible really mean six days, for instance? Now, it turns out the Hebrew word for day, this word yom, has at least three different meanings. And uh, I've got this rather contrived little sentence to sort of illustrate this. In my father's day... Now, the word day there means, of course, an indefinite period of time in the past. Obviously, doesn't mean that my father lived for just 24 hours, because if that was true, I wouldn't be here, right? And then we can say it took 10 days. Now, if you place <coughs> a number next to the word day, it always means a 24-hour day. So you can look on your calendar, and you see that um, you know, here we are on the uh, 13th of uh, of July, and if I said to you I'm going to come back in three days, you look at that and say, okay, he's coming back on the 16th. When you see a number next to the word day, it always means a 24-hour day. You can test it in any language. You know, in Genesis chapter 1, every single day is numbered. Not only that, the day is defined, and there's a cycle of creative activity, evening, then morning, and so God makes it absolutely abundantly clear that these are ordinary days. And of course, the word day can mean the daylight hours of a day. But friends, the context of a sentence always makes the meaning clear. But six days, I mean, wow, we're so used to hearing about the millions and millions of years, aren't we, that six days seems incredible. But you know, my Bible tells me that God is all-powerful, he's uh, all-knowing, in fact, if you think about it, 
He could have created the entire universe just like that, in six microseconds. So I think the question we should be asking is, why did he take so long? Have you ever thought of it that way? It's a bit different, isn't it? Well, you know, the Bible tells us why he took so long. And we read about it in Exodus chapter 20, verse 11. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth to see, and all that is in them, that little expression there, by the way, means absolutely everything, in other words, the universe. But he rested on the seventh day. You see, God laid down a pattern for us, six days of work, one of rest. That's why he took so long. I mean, has anybody here tried to work seven days a week without resting? There's always a few sort of sheepish looks. Doesn't work for long, does it? You burn out, you get sick, you crash. We are designed to have a day of rest. You know, there are so many different ways in which people have attempted to fit the millions of years into the Bible. But every single one of these, these schemes, or these, uh, these ideas, um, I think actually pretty much every one of them is actually still taught in Bible colleges in Australia today. But everyone has a fatal flaw. And the fatal flaw is this. They all place death before Adam's sin. Remember what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15? Since by man came death. So that's the foundation stone of the gospel message. Imagine if, if the millions of years were true. Here's Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden and God's looking at it all and saying that it's very good. If the millions of years were true, then they would be standing on layers and layers of rock full of fossils showing death, suffering and disease. How can such a thing be very good? So friends, the elephant is still in the room. So I want to suggest to you tonight there's a much better strategy with this elephant. And I want to suggest that what you need to do is walk over to this elephant and give it a good poke and just find out how real it actually is. For instance, what about this topic, natural selection? You know, Darwin believed that it was natural selection that enabled simple organisms to become complex ones. And we still hear that presented on popular science shows today. So, let's have a little look at natural selection. You know, if you want to build a building like this one, you need to have information. You need plans and designs. This building didn't come about because of an explosion in a brick pit, right? It was planned, wasn't it? People delivered loads of bricks and the builders got to it. They had a design. And it turns out that if you want to assemble a living organism, you need information, assembly instructions. Let's imagine you wanted to make a simple, not really simple, a single celled bacterium. It's actually very complex. You could imagine writing all the instructions down to assemble this thing in a, a book. It'd be a large book, 500 pages or so, like a volume of an encyclopedia. You young people probably don't know what encyclopedia is. It's a hard copy version of Wikipedia, right? <laughs> now, if you wanted to make a more complex animal, say like a horse, now you need a lot more information. You need to have information about making muscles, bones, tendons, hearts, lungs, eyes. The list goes on and on, doesn't it? You need huge amounts of information. So to go from simple to complex, you need to write encyclopedia volumes full of assembly instructions. Now all of those instructions are stored on this incredible molecule called the DNA molecule. And uh, it's the most um, amazing storage system in the universe. 
You know, human DNA has enough information on it to fill a thousand books full of information, not just little paperbacks, but big ones. So, how do you write this thousand books of information to go from an amoeba to a man? Well, let me explain to you how natural selection works, and hopefully you'll see that it isn't going to help answer this challenge. So let's imagine these two creatures are actually dogs, and uh, they have medium-length hair. Now, the reason they have medium-length hair is they have a gene for making short hair, and they have a gene for making long hair. So these two genes are uh, uh, codependent genes, and so they work together and produce a creature with medium-length hair. Now, if we make these two dogs, there's a number of ways we can get their puppies. The first one inherits a short-haired gene from each of his parents, so he has very short hair. Now, these next two guys, they are a bit like their parents. They get the short and long-haired gene from each parent, and so they have medium-length hair. But this little guy, he gets the jackpot. Okay, so he's got the long-haired gene from each parent, so he's a very hairy little dog. Now let's imagine this population of dogs migrates to a cold country, lots of ice and snow and sleet and what have you. The short and medium length haired dogs will be selected against by the environment. See, natural selection is a real observable phenomenon. In fact, it was observed by a creationist Christian before Darwin. Now before long, these little guys are going to die out and all that will be left will be long-haired dogs. So if these two guys fall in love, they'll produce a bunch of little puppies, but every single one of them will have long hair. So can you see what's actually happened here? There's been a loss of genetic information for making short and medium-length hair. So natural selection actually reduces genetic information. At, at the very best, it simply sorts existing information, but it can never create novel genetic information. But remember, to get from a simple organism to a complex one, we've got to write volumes and volumes of new coherent information. So natural selection is actually not a problem on the elephant in the biblical room. It's an observable phenomenon, it's the mechanism of adaptation, but it's a downhill process it's a conservative process at best, it's not a creative process. Now we often hear it said that evolution can be observed in a laboratory, it's change over time, and the prof will say, I see evolution happening in my lab, it's a fact. So what the prof is observing is changes in living organisms, butterflies, fruit fly or whatever, but the way it's presented to the general public is that this is proof of how we went from amoebas to mankind. But is evolution really the same as change? Now, when we look at the world around us, we know there's a wide variety of dogs, but they're all still dogs, aren't they? And they all greet each other in that doggy sort of way. But you can breed dogs as much as you like, and you'll never produce some other kind of animal, like a cat, because there are limits to the extent of variation with every kind. And in fact, we observe that in the vegetable kingdom. If you take this mango tree, it produces delicious mangoes. If you take the seed of the mango, plant it, what kind of tree do you get? You get another mango tree. So things reproduce according to their kinds, which is exactly what the Bible said would happen in Genesis chapter 1. So what we observe using real science, observable now, is there is a wide variety of people, but they're all still people, 
wide variety of horse kind, of dog kind, of plants, and so on. So this uh, idea of the evolutionary tree, this Darwinian idea, has a starting off as a single cell, and, and up here we see all of the, the different uh, sorts of, of creatures, species, and what have you. But a better description is actually a creation orchard. And here, right at the beginning of time, God creates all these different kinds of animals. Over time, there's been diversification, speciation's taken place. Some have become extinct. So today, we see a lot of variation, but all within discrete kinds. In fact, this is recognised by the evolutionists, and uh, this man said we can go on examining natural variation at all levels, as well as hypothesising about speciation events in bedbugs, bears and brachiopods until the planet reaches oblivion. But we still only end up with bedbugs, brachiopods and bears. None of these body plans will transform into rotifers, roundworms or rinker seals. Now, even if I knew what all those body plans were, which I don't, I think he makes his point very eloquently, doesn't he? Variation is not the same as evolution. So, this is actually what's called equivocation. It's saying variation in one kind is an explanation of molecules to man evolution. But indeed, it's not. So, friends, change over time is not a problem on the elephant in the biblical room at all. But let's have a look at this mutations question. You know, scientists recognise that natural selection is a downhill process. So they've hypothesised that what happens is the genetic code experiences an abrupt change and in, in some of the letters and that by chance might happen to produce a trait or an attribute for that particular creature which is beneficial and uh, that then gets locked into the population and that's the mechanism slowly, gradually that we move from simple organisms to complex ones. But mutations are copying mistakes. You know, I wish they were called that because it would be much easier to understand if they were. For instance, I could take that simple sentence, copy it, make some careless errors, have I added information? Well, obviously not. In fact, I've corrupted it. Indeed, errors almost always delete or corrupt information. Random copying errors cannot account for the encyclopedic quantities of information on our DNA. You can't get new chapters full of information by making copying mistakes. It simply doesn't happen. In fact, um, this is uh, Carl Sagan, who uh, very high-profile evolutionists, and he admitted mutations occur at random and are almost uniformly harmful. It is rare that a precision machine is improved by a random change in instructions for making it. And friends, I can assure you, if you made random changes in the instructions for assembling a communication spacecraft, you would not get a better product out the factory door. Now here's an interesting example. This is a little rooster which has had the information for making feathers switched off through a mutation. Now, if you were the chook farmer, you'd probably think this was a brilliant mutation because now you don't have to pluck the chooks, right? If you're the little chook, I think you'd have a very different view. But the point is there's nothing new here. It's simply a deletion of existing information. By the way, the technical term here, the TNR mutant, it actually stands for totally naked rooster. I kid you not. You see, if this process of naturalistic events through mutations or natural selection could actually give rise to 
more and more complex organisms, surely there must be a lot of examples around. And this question was put to Professor Richard Dawkins. You'll find this on our DVD out the back, From a Frog to a Prince. And the question was this, Professor Dawkins, can you, can you give an example of a genetic mutation or an evolutionary process which can be seen to increase the information in the genome? So let's watch this little clip and see how Richard Dawkins replies. Professor Dawkins, can you give an example of a genetic mutation or an evolutionary process which can be seen to increase the information in the genome? Now friends, I'd suggest to you that that silence is very eloquent. Because if indeed natural random processes could add genetic information to go from simple to complex, surely there must be countless examples he could just draw upon in an instant. But you see, it's never been observed. So it's actually an article of faith for those who believe in the evolutionary story. It is not based on observable science. Richard Dawkins was once asked this question, has evolution been observed? And he replied, evolution has been observed, it's just that it hasn't been observed while it's happening. And I'd suggest that's not a good answer. In fact, a much better one comes from Professor Paul Davies, who says there is no known law of physics able to create information from nothing. You see, for this mechanism to happen that is believed in by all evolutionists, you actually have to discover a brand new law of physics, which hitherto does not exist. So friends, mutations are not a problem on the elephant in the biblical room. Ah, but what about this question of the age of the earth, the billions of years? I mean, surely here there is irrefutable evidence for the vast age of the earth. You know, the idea of the vast antiquity of the earth came from the field of geology. In fact, as I mentioned at the beginning, it was Charles Lyell who really promoted it. And the line of argument goes like this. Here's a classic example of, uh, of sedimentary layers of rock. By the way, sedimentary layers of rock are rock laid down by water. All right, that's interesting. Just tuck that one away for a while. So here we see all of these layers and layers of rock. Now, the traditional geological story goes like this, that there was some kind of a flood or catastrophic event which laid down a layer of sedimentary rock. Some years later, there's another one on top of that, and then another one, and another one, and so on, building up all of these layers of sedimentary rock. I mean, we're actually standing on the stuff. The Hawkesbury Sandstone is a sedimentary rock, along with all the other rocks that make up the Blue Mountains. But when we look closely, we see, in fact, a different picture. So here are two different layers on the, in the Grand Canyon. This is the Coconino Sandstone, and underneath is what's called the Hermit Shale. Now, you'll notice the boundary is very clearly defined, and traditionally it's believed there's about 10 million years between the Hermit Shale and the Coconino Sandstone on top. So what that says is that flat surface, which by the way extends for hundreds of kilometres in Grand Canyon, that flat surface must have laid there for 10 million years before the Coconino Sandstone got deposited on top. So wouldn't you expect to see some evidence of elapsed time? For instance, you would expect to find signs of vegetation, tree roots, animal burrows, and certainly the next time it rained, there would be some evidence of erosion, creeks, rivers, and so on. 
Friends, there is no evidence of erosion anywhere along that contact, nor, by the way, on many other of the contacts in the Grand Canyon. So what it actually suggests to us is that those two layers were formed rapidly, one after the other, with very little, if any, elapsed time between them. It speaks of a catastrophic rapid process. Well, have we ever seen anything like that happen in the world today? Well, we have. Back in 1980, uh, there was an eruption in Washington State, Mount St. Helens. Only a moderate volcano, as volcanoes go, but it caused significant geological change in the area around the mountain, including the formation of this structure called Little Grand Canyon. Now, if you look here, you'll see in the walls of the canyon, there are these layers and layers of rock. You can see there's a little creek, a river flowing in the bottom. Now, this canyon is one fortieth the size of the real Grand Canyon in Arizona. So this is about 40 metres deep. So that's a pretty big canyon. Now, if you were to adopt the traditional interpretation of that, you'd say each layer was laid down year after year, must have taken many, many years to deposit all that material. Along came that little river, carved out this canyon, one fortieth the size of Grand Canyon. Obviously, it represents millions of years of slow geological process. But friends, none of that material was even there before 1980 when the eruption happened. How do we know? Because we observed it to happen. Remember what science was about? Observable, repeatable experiments. So we observed this to take place. Now it turns out about two years after the eruption, there was a massive mud flow in the area and that mud flow carved out Little Grand Canyon. Okay, now, given that it's one fortieth the size of the real Grand Canyon and it's been around for no more than 35 years, how long do you think it would have taken for that mud flow to carve out a canyon that big? I mean, who thinks it would have taken at least a year to do that? Any takers? Yep, everyone else must think it's less than a year, so who thinks it would have been between, say, a month and a year? Any takers? Okay, a few more. Who never puts their hand up if asked a question in church? <laughs> you know, friends, that canyon was carved out in just one day. One day, a fortieth the size of Grand Canyon. You know, this idea from geology that it took millions and millions of years to form is not supported by the observable evidence. You know, the Bible gives us a timeline right from Adam all the way through to Noah, to Abraham, to King David, and then via these two different routes, the line of Mary and the line of Joseph, all the way to the time of Jesus. So there's about 4,000 years on that chart from the time of Jesus to the present day, of course, is about 2,000 years. So, according to the Bible, here we stand today about 6,000 years after the creation. 6,000 years. Whoa, that seems incredible. How could anyone believe that in this day and age? I mean, if that was true, surely there would be evidence to support it, right? Well, friends, there is. There's heaps of it just that we don't hear about it. But let me share just a couple with you and I'll point you to some other resources. You know, on the ocean floor today there's a certain amount of mud and sediment. It's being added to by the river systems around the world at the rate of about 20 billion tonnes every year. So knowing how fast it's accumulating and knowing how much is there, we can place an upper limit on the age of the ocean basins. And you know, it turns out all of that sediment would have accumulated in less than 12 million years. Now, friends, that's a disastrous result for the evolutionary story. But because, of course, the oceans are supposed to be like 3,000 million years old, not just 12, 
but it's a problem, isn't it, for the time scale in the Bible, which suggests the earth is only thousands of years old. But friends, when we go to the historical record, we discover there was a catastrophic, watery disaster on a global scale. What was it? Noah's flood, right. And that would indeed have dumped huge quantities of mud and sediment onto the ocean floor. You know, the population of the world today is about 7 billion people. If you started off with three couples, Shem, Ham and Japheth and their wives, after the flood about 4,500 years ago, and let that population grow at the rate of just under half a percent, you get about 7 billion people. Now, half a percent is a conservative growth rate. The population growth rate is a bit bigger than that now. But it will more than adequately account for things like wars, diseases, famines and so on. So, at face value, the population of the world today is consistent with the Bible's timelines. But friends, if we had been on the earth for a million years, or whatever people think these days that humanity has been around for, where are all the people? We should be shoulder to shoulder on every square metre of the planet's surface, including the oceans, which obviously is not the case. If you want to learn more about these uh, evidences for the young age of the earth, I'd recommend this article on our website, 101 Ages for a Young Earth and the Universe. You can get uh, to that article at creation.com forward slash age. So friends, the millions of years are actually not a problem on the elephant in the biblical room because the evidence does not support them. You know what? There actually is no elephant in the biblical room. But there's a very, very big elephant in the Darwinian room. And not the least of its problems is that the evidence suggests the age of the earth is only thousands of years, which is nowhere near long enough for evolution to have taken place. Every mechanism for going from simple organisms to complex ones all lead to a loss of information and not a gain. But what about this question of the origin of the very first life? You know, that's uh, an issue, it's it's called chemical evolution because in the the naturalist's view of the origin of things there must have been some time in the past when inanimate chemicals assembled themselves into the first living, self-replicating cell. How did it happen? Professor Paul Davies again says, no one knows how a mixture of lifeless chemicals spontaneously organised themselves into the first living cell. Now it's bad enough trying to get all the the biological hardware, as it were, to all come together by accident. But even that's not good enough because cells are controlled by software, coded instructions written on the DNA in every single cell. So Davies goes on and asks, how did stupid atoms spontaneously write their own software? Good question. You see, if you took a single living cell and enlarged it to be the size of a city like Sydney, what you would find would be an incredibly complex system of, uh, well, you have uh, communication networks, transportation systems, there are factories that produce component parts that get delivered to other factories and so on. There's uh, a power supply system here in uh, these mitochondria, which are these little organelles inside the, the cell. And inside of those are these membranes, and embedded on the membranes are these incredible devices called the ATP synthase enzyme. Anyone studied biology here? Well, so if you've done biology, you'll know about ATP. It's like the energy currency of the cell. Your cells won't function or operate without this. In fact, you can't blink an eye or move a muscle in your body without requiring ATP in the cells of your body. 
Now, the amazing thing is that this little enzyme is driven by an electric motor, which whizzes around here and uh, you know, energizes this process. Now, some scientists actually got the Nobel Prize for discovering this, and based on some electron microscope images of the machinery inside the cell, we've got this animated clip to give you some idea of the staggering complexity of just this one enzyme. Now, I want to just play this clip to you, and it, it is narrated, so it'll, it'll explain itself pretty much, I think. But there are thousands upon thousands of each of these little enzymes in every single cell in your body. And there are more cells in your body than there are stars in the whole Milky Way galaxy. So have a look at this incredible little machine. This animated sequence shows the ATP synthase enzyme in operation. The animation is based on an incredible series of scientific discoveries. Only the colors show artistic license. ATP, or adenosine triphosphate, is the energy currency of the cell. ATP is produced by a tiny molecular rotary motor, rotating it up to 7,000 RPM. These are so small that 100,000 would fit side by side in a millimeter. A current of protons drives the motor, unlike man-made electric motors which use electrons. This portion of the enzyme is where adenosine diphosphate is combined with a phosphate ion in the presence of a catalyst to produce ATP, which is then released, making way for the next cycle. A top view of the enzyme shows the sequential operation. Almost every biochemical process in your body requires ATP. Such a nanomachine exhibits all the characteristics of super-intelligent design. ATP is vital for life, and many of these motors were needed before the first living cell could exist. An evolutionary impossibility. It's an amazing machine. You don't have to sort of... There's not going to be a short exam afterwards on this, right? So relax. But I just wanted to run that clip to give you some understanding of the staggering complexity inside each cell in our bodies. Now, can you imagine how that could have come about? Professor Sir Fred Hoyle, who is not a Christian, very astutely observed that the probability of the formation of just one of the many proteins on which life depends is comparable to that of the solar system packed full of blind people randomly shuffling Rubik's cubes and all arriving at the solution at the same time. Think about that. Imagine what that would look like. I mean, hey, man. It's not going to happen, is it? It's ridiculous. You know, back in the middle 1800s, Louis Pasteur formulated what we call now the law of biogenesis, which says that life only originates from life. Life has never been observed to originate from inanimate chemicals. So this whole question of biogenesis is a huge problem for the elephant in the Darwinian room. But friends, when we look around ourselves, what we discover is that all life is actually fading away because of mutations which relentlessly accumulate in each and every one of us. It's called genetic entropy. In fact, ageing is largely a genetic process. Professor John Sanford, who was um, professor of uh, bio, uh, genetics rather at Cornell University, very famous geneticist, 
now a Bible-believing Christian, actually became a Christian because of his work on genetic entropy, said this, there are at least a hundred new mutations per person per generation. Each and every one of us has tens of thousands of bad mutations each. Two to three percent of all babies born have a visible birth defect today. Five percent of babies born in Australia are born with a genetic disease. There are some 6,000 human Mendelian diseases, that means inheritable genetic diseases, and geneticists agree that we are actually degenerating. See, observable science tells us that from generation to generation we're going downhill. We're getting worse and worse, folks, not better and better. This is not a good news story. You know, the Bible says that the whole of creation is in bondage to decay, and that's exactly what we observe. So genetic entropy tells us that Darwinian evolution cannot possibly have happened because natural selection cannot even preserve our DNA, let alone improve it. But also, the timescales in the Bible are actually confirmed because if we'd been around for a million years, we would actually, by now, all be extinct. But we're not. So that means we can only have been around for just thousands of years. So genetic entropy is a huge burden on the elephant in the Darwinian room. In fact, it is so burdened, I'd replace the lot by saying that there is no real evidence for evolution. Now that's a pretty daring statement in this day and age, but I can say it with confidence because evolution has not happened. Remember what I mean by evolution? Naturalistic process from molecules to mankind. The only way we can be here in existence is if there has been and is a creator God. Richard Dawkins was asked this uh, about evidence. He says, we don't need evidence. We know it to be true. But friends, that is a faith statement. So Darwin's grand ideas and Lyell's views actually fade away in the light of the observed data which is totally consistent with the Genesis account of creation based on observable science. Now the Bible says that we are to demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And I'd suggest to you this evening folks that belief in evolution in our culture today is probably the biggest pretension that stops people coming to God. Why? Because if evolution's true, the universe has made itself and there is no God. How can you come to someone who doesn't exist? You know, Hebrews 11.6 says, without faith it's impossible to please God. Anyone who comes to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. So how do we demolish this argument? Well, friends, we can't all become scientists, but that's where our ministry is aimed at equipping you with answers to the challenges. I mentioned the Creation magazine at the beginning, and that's perhaps our number one equipping and witnessing weapon. And I say that because it comes four times a year. It's written for lay people. You don't have to be a scientist to understand it. And we get more testimonies from people whose lives have been impacted by Creation Magazine than possibly any other of our resources. This lady wrote to us and said, you've given me a wonderful tool with which to encourage me as a believer because it answered her questions, teach my children the truth of creation. And wow, how important is that today because our young people are being bombarded with this evolutionary indoctrination like never, ever before. And thirdly, to witness to her unbelieving friends. 
And this young man was an example of that. He said, at first I shunned the belief of my parents, but after living on my own for two years with the aid of a copy of your magazine, which I was given one day, note that phrase, I realised that I was the one who was wrong and I asked for salvation. So friends, I want to give you an opportunity to get connected to our Creation magazine because it's such a vital resource Four issues a year, a one-year subscription is $28, a three-year subscription is $75. But um, we're also moving a bit with the times now. By the way, if you uh, sign up for one year you'll get and, and pay for your sub tonight, we'll give you a free back issue of the magazine, so you've got something to take away and read and then hopefully give away. For a three-year subscription, we'll give you a free back issue plus one of our DVDs out there for free. Now, we're moving into the uh, modern era. We actually also offer it as a digital subscription um, for a small amount each year. Now, the beauty of digital is that it can be accessed on up to five different devices. So if you've got a PC at home, a laptop, a smartphone, one of these iThingies, whatever, um, then you can gain access to the magazine on the move. In fact, grandparents, it's a fabulous way of getting access giving access to the magazine to your grandchildren, of course, parents to your children. Perhaps I could ask, who here already subscribes to Creation Magazine? A few of you? Well, for existing subscribers, you don't get to miss out on the freebies. If you extend your existing subscription by three years, print plus digital, we'll add a digital sub to whatever remains of your existing subscription. So the way it's going to work is this. In a moment, I'll get um, our friends of the ministry to distribute those clipboards again. On it will be a form like this. Now, you'll need to indicate, of course, your name, address and contact details so we know where to send the magazine. And then indicate whether you want a one- or a three-year subscription, whether you want to add digital to it, and tick the appropriate box and that little coupon. Then tear off the coupon and uh, make sure you take that into the hall at the back and uh, when you pay for the sub, we'll make sure that you get your free gift. So while those boards go around, I want to tell you quickly about some of our other resources. If you buy just one tonight, I'd recommend this one, the Creation Answers book. It consists of 20 short chapters that answer the most asked questions that Christians and non-Christians alike have. Things like, for instance, um, how do I know there's a God? Uh, where did all the water go after the flood? And the classic question that comes time and again is this one, where did Cain get his wife if he wasn't able? Anyway, move, moving quickly along. Sorry about that. Um, <clears throat> this little booklet, Refuting Evolution, looks at the iconic evidences for evolution. This is, you know, the highest-selling creation book of all time. Now over half a million copies have been sold. And we've combined that along with the Answers book and a DVD on why this issue matters, and we call that our intro pack. So if you buy an intro pack, it's like buying two of those things and getting the third one for free. You know, this is a good question. How do we know that the Bible is the correct holy book? We need to be able to give a sound answer to that question. How do we know it's not the Koran, for instance? So Christians need to be equipped. A little $3.50 booklet, which is excellent resource. By Design looks at um, evidence for intelligent design in the, the world around us and shows that the designer is the God of the universe. And if you want more on the age of the earth, I'd recommend this one, The Young Earth by Dr. John Morris. We've got lots of children's material out there, including this children's pack, five hard-covered books, just over half price. And this is a great little book, Exploring Geology with Mr. Hibb. This little grasshopper takes uh, kids through 
um, at least not just such young kids, actually all the way up through into early high school, um, looking at uh, evidence for the uh, creation account in geology. We have lots of DVDs out there, Rapid Rocks, The Mystery of Our Declining Genes. Remember I mentioned Dr. John Sanford, this is the talk that he gave. And the talk you've just heard tonight with a bit more detail is also available. And we have the, what we call the Core Issues Pack, eight DVDs for less than half price that address the most, uh, I suppose, the key issues, aspects of this whole question of origins. So friends, the Bible paints this picture of three conditions of the earth. Firstly, an original perfect world into which has come an intrusion of death, disease and suffering. And that, friends, is the world in which we live today. It also tells us there is coming a new heaven and a new earth. Now, when I was younger, I believed in the millions of years, and so that was like taking that top left-hand corner out of the picture. So my understanding of the world was that it was full of death and disease and suffering right from the very beginning. But friends, what that means is that God must have created the world a mess like it is. And so questions like how come bad things happen to good people now become very real questions. If that left-hand corner's gone, there is no adequate answer to that question. But you know, the new heaven and the new earth, the Bible says, is going to be a restoration. A restoration to what? To more suffering and death? You see, if the millions of years are true, there's actually no hope for the future either. So friends, it's a very bleak picture. That's why we need to put that top left-hand corner back into our understanding. And that is what we read about in the opening chapters of the book of Genesis. So friends, when we proclaim Jesus to the world, we're not just talking about some itinerant Jewish preacher who lived 2,000 years ago. We're talking, number one, about the creator of the universe who also was the perfect sinless son of God who paid the price for our rebellion. The price, by the way, was death because Adam brought death into the world. So without that opening chapter of Genesis, the cross makes no sense at all. So friends, just in closing, what was that web address again? Creation.com, that's right. I just praise God for the beauty of his creation, but above all, for the wonders of his most amazing grace. Thank you very much.